three things so far. We've looked at what life in the kingdom of grace is like. We looked at the joy of being found in Psalm 32. We've looked at David's sin and God's pardon in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And then last night we looked at Psalm 51 and we saw David's repentance. Well, this morning we're going to look at David's hope and David's assurance that he gets from God. And I want to start off by explaining why have I chosen this title for this series, Life in the Kingdom of Grace. Because I could have entitled this, David's Fall and the Effects that it Has on the Kingdom of God. That would have been an okay enough title, but if you look at these two chapters, they're not about David's fall. (laughs) And they're not about the effects that his sin has on the kingdom. David's fall actually shines the light brighter on the wonder of God's grace towards him. I mean, the heinousness of his sin shows just how far and how great God's grace over his sin really is. So what do we see with David? We see a normal life lived out in a kingdom that is ruled and reigned by grace. But I'm going to warn you up front, our text today is actually going to challenge our understanding of God reigning and ruling by his grace. But let's establish something about God's kingdom real quick. In Romans 5, chapter 2, Paul says that the only way that God deals with believers is by and with his grace. The only way God deals with believers is by and with his grace. Listen to what he says. But the verb tense here is in the present ongoing continual. So he says, having been justified, past tense, we Presently, so I'll fill in what it will mean. We presently, perpetually, and permanently have peace with God. And we presently, permanently, presently, perpetually, and permanently stand in a state of grace. And then in Romans 6.14, Paul says this about believers. Sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under Grace. And this doesn't mean just under the influence of grace. This means you are under the realm, the reign, and the dominion of grace. So God's law does not rule believers because sin has no dominion over us. Grace, God's grace has dominion over us. So believers, we live in a state, we live in a realm where God's grace reigns and rules even though we continue to sin. Now, why am I establishing this fact? Because as I studied this text, I came across some commentators who don't agree with my interpretation, which is fine. But they do not consider this reality, and therefore they view 2 Samuel 12 differently. Now, you can disagree with me, which is fine. You can disagree with my reading of it. That's fine. But here's what I'm going to argue. You have to deal with Romans chapter 5 through 8 as your interpretive grid to read 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And by me making that statement, that makes a lot of people uncomfortable right there. Oh, you can't do that. That's not a correct way to view the Bible. You can't project the, Old, the New Testament into the Old Testament because that's not how the original writers would read it. So you're imposing a view of Scripture that the original audience didn't have. And I want to briefly say three things about this real quick, okay? First, the New Testament writers viewed the Old Testament this way. 
All you got to do is ask yourself as you're reading the New Testament, how are they using the Old Testament when they quote it? How are they viewing the Old Testament? They interpret the Old Testament through a New Testament, Jesus fulfilling it all grid. Second, this is how Jesus viewed the Bible. In John 5, verse 39, he's having a conversation with some of the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, about the Old Testament scriptures. And he says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these... What scriptures did they have at that time? Genesis to Malachi. But it is these that bear witness of me. Or in Luke 24, 27, after Jesus rose from the grave, he's having this conversation with his depressed disciples whose hope has been dashed because they thought he was the Messiah. And he says to them, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus views the Old Testament through a New Testament. He fulfills it all grid. And then third, the Old Testament writers actually knew that their writings were not just for their original audience. They were actually writing for us, those who lived after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And they knew that. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 10-12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be given, or was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Here it was. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So why am I stressing this? Because if you do not read the Old Testament through the New Testament grid of Christ fulfilling it all, then you are not reading your Bibles correctly. And you cannot explain God's pardon. You cannot explain David's hope. And you cannot explain David's assurance unless you see Christ fulfilling it all. So, as we read 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 to 25, we must read it through the lens of God's grace reigning and ruling over his kingdom, or else we'll continue to have a distorted view of the scriptures. All right, so give your attention to the reading of God's word. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Verses 13 through 25. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, it's a but. Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted, and he went in, and he lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but they could not. He did not eat food either. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. So how then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself harm. But when David saw his servants were whispering together, David understood 
that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went down to his own house and when he asked, they set food aside for him and he ate. And then the servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food? And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Let me pray and ask for God's blessing on his word, and then we'll jump in. Father, this is a difficult word. Uh, this is a part of scripture that a lot of people have had a hard time interpreting. I just pray that you would give us eyes to see, you would give us ears to hear, and that you would penetrate deeply into our hearts the message of this text. And I pray that you would be pleased to do this for our good and for your great glory. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, nobody can read this text (laughs) without it troubling them a little bit, without it raising questions, without it raising concerns. And I'm going to be honest, I'm not going to be able to answer all your questions and concerns in this talk. So... It shows us some things, though. This text, believe it or not, is actually oozing grace. It doesn't seem it. It's a difficult text. But this text, grace just pours and pours and pours out of it. God's love for his people, in spite of his people, is one of the main points of this text. And it shows us, David, when he falls down to the ground, amidst the most intense suffering and grief, something happened that enabled him to get back up. So here's what I want to do. I want to build the scene a little bit on why David could not get off the ground and why nobody else could get him off the ground. And then I want to look at how God's grace is what lifts him up. Now, in our past two talks, let's review real quick. What have we looked at? What, have da- what has David done? David has coveted another man's wife, a close friend of his wife. He commits adultery with her. She becomes pregnant. And so to cover it up, he has her husband, Uriah, murdered. So David, at this point, after he dies, after Uriah dies, takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And he thinks he has successfully covered it up. And now he's trying to get on with life as if nothing ever happened. Because he's so blind by his sin and deceived by his sin, God sends Nathan to him to awaken him so that he sees his sin and returns to God by repenting. So let's be honest, though. (laughs) Nobody in this room, because if you did, you wouldn't be in this room. You'd be in the state penitentiary. Nobody in this room has committed the sins that David has. So... The type of sins that he has. So it's hard for us maybe to understand, but let me think of something for a moment. Think of the worst sin you've ever committed. 
Think of the sin where you actually hurt somebody deeply because of it. Got it? How did you feel afterwards? When you came to the realization of what you've done and the harm it caused, how did you feel? Guilty? Dirty? Contaminated? This damning condemnation? This affliction of your soul, wishing I could take it back, but I can't, and I can't change it, and there's nothing I can do about it? You feel dirty and gross, unclean? There's this overwhelming panic. There's this overwhelming anxiety that floods your heart and the shame feels unbearable. If you in any way identify with that, multiply that by a thousand and you'll get an idea of what David's feeling and experiencing right now. He is being confronted with the fact he turned away from a God who has blessed him beyond belief. He is being confronted by the fact that he has destroyed the lives of countless peoples and their extended families. He betrays a close friend, takes his wife, and then takes the man's life to cover it up. And now at this moment, he's confronted with the weight of what he has done. And then because of his sin, he is told that the son of his sin must die. Look at verses 16 to 17. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and he went in and he lay all night on the ground. The elders of the house stood to try to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat any food. David is knocked to the ground with grief. And there is nobody that can get him up. It crushed him so deeply The weight of it is so heavy that he is prostrate on the ground. People are trying to get him up and they can't. Nobody can get him up. But then to everybody's surprise, look at verse 20. David gets up. He goes into the house of the Lord and he worships. No one understands. All the servants are dumbfounded. I mean, while the child was alive, look at how he's acting. So now that the child has died, if we tell, if he acted that way when he's alive, if we were to tell him he's dead, what's he going to do? He could kill himself. David's actions in verse 20, it defies reason, doesn't it? I mean, we can easily understand why David's on the ground. But we have a harder time understanding, how did he get up? Now... I believe that there are three things that God gives David that actually enable him to rise from the floor to worship God amidst such intense grief, suffering, and pain. But to see the first one, i got to ask the interpretive and troubling question that this text raises. And we all must ask it. Is the death of the child punishment for David's sin? Maybe as I was reading verses 13 and 14, you were thinking, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right. Right? I mean, if David's sin is forgiven, if he's not going to suffer the just legal penalty that the law demands, if he's forgiven, if God has lifted it, if he's removed it, if he doesn't see it, then why does the child die? I mean, it sounds contradictory, doesn't it? It's like, David, you're forgiven, but because of your sin, child's going to die. 
Look closely again at verse 14. For the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. This phrase, the Lord has put away your sin, it means I don't see your sin. It means I've lifted and removed it so completely I will not require legal payment. I will not count it against you and exact any payment for it. I will pass over it. And then to drive this home, what does God say through Nathan? You will not die. So, the law in Leviticus 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 22, says that murder and adultery deserve death. It's the Old Testament law. What David did deserves death. And God says, you will not die. So, God is saying, I'm not treating you according to to what the law demands. I'm treating you according to grace. I'm giving you what you don't deserve. So, right away, David is assured in verse 13. He is assured that the death of the child, it's not retribution, it's not payback, and it's not punishment for what David has done. So here it is. If you read verse 14 as retribution, as punishment, as payback, you do away with verse 13. Verse 13 is meaningless then. And this is what blew me away because this is what some commentators were saying. That God's punishing David. And that totally disregards verse 13 where he assures him he won't and he hasn't. God will not hold it against him. David is pardoned and David is forgiven. So what do we make of verse 14? First of all, get technical here. It's a contrastive but. It's not a connective and. So right away it tells you verse 14 is a break, not a connection to verse 13. Okay? So in spite of what I said in verse 13, the child will die. So that means verse 14 is something different. It's not connected to David's specific sin as payback, retribution, or punishment. So it's something else entirely. The death of the child is necessary to work on your heart, David. The death of this child is necessary to transform your heart again. Now, verse 14, it's difficult to translate because some texts say that you have caused others to hold me in contempt or scorn me, while other translations say you held me in contempt and scorned me. And I think both apply because here's what's interesting. The word for scorned or contempt, it literally means to think little of. It's the opposite of the Hebrew word chabod. Chabod means glory. It's the weightiness of God's glory. The glory of who God is is weighty. It's heavy. And this word is the opposite of that. So what is going on? David, I have become so small and so insignificant in your eyes that who I am carries little weight with you. Who I am isn't valuable to you anymore. Who I am is insignificant to you. 
I've become this abstract concept, not a significant reality in your life. You may say that you believe that I exist, but the reality of my existence and who I am means nothing to you right now. David, the child will die because in your eyes, I'm not worth very much to you right now. I have become this abstract, distant concept. My worth no longer deeply affects you in the way that you live. So verse 14, it's not punishment, it's not payback, and it's not retribution. It's for David's sanctification. God has become so insignificant to David that something drastic is necessary to awaken David to the reality of who God is. And doesn't this explain something? Doesn't this explain how a man after God's own heart could become a man who is only concerned about what's in his heart? Doesn't this explain how a man who delights in God's will could become a man who despises God's will? The glory of who God is and all that God has done for David carries little weight for David right now. God is not the ultimate reality in David's eyes. And because God is not the ultimate reality in David's eyes, because the weighty glory of who God is isn't weighty to David anymore, when he sees Bathsheba bathing, he couldn't just say, wow, she's beautiful. But she's not worth disobeying God. She's not worth destroying my family. She's not worth destroying my kingdom. Because God was insignificant in David's eyes. Because God was not weighty in David's eyes. Bathsheba carried more weight. It didn't matter that the taker meant that he was breaking God's law. It didn't matter that he would destroy his kingdom. It didn't matter that he would destroy families. So something drastic needed to be done so that God would become significant to David again. David's spiritual life is at stake. And I like one commentator said this. He said, God is not using the sword against David. He's using a scalpel. Now, I know this is troubling. I mean, seriously. I do not know why the death of the child was necessary to awaken David to the reality of God's glory. I don't know why that was necessary to take the child to do it. This troubles me. But I do know this. Verses 13 and 14 make it clear that the death of the child is not punishment. It is not payback. It is not retribution for David's sin. So, the question still remains, however. How was David able to get up off the floor when the child dies? And in our text, we see because he receives two words of grace from God while he was down there. In verse 23, it gives us a clue as to what that might be. All right, now, remember at this time, okay, 
At this time, they don't have a full understanding of the afterlife like we do now. Okay? They don't have a full understanding of that. Because for them, life was found in the land, in the kingdom. And what, you happen, what happened afterwards is they just thought you go to be with God and that's all that they know. Okay? So, God must have given David direct revelation. He must have directly spoken to David and gave him revelation about what was going to happen. And this is what sent me on a rabbit trail for quite a while because one commentator said that the direct revelation might be Psalm 16 that God gave David. And here's what Psalm 16 verses 10 to 11 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You made known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So regardless of whether that was the revelation or not, what do we know? God revealed to David that the child will be with him in heaven, and God revealed to David that David would be with that child and with God for all of eternity. So what is, what's so significant about this? David, your sin did not disqualify you from eternal life with me. And your sin does not disqualify your son from having eternal life with me. So God, he not only assures David that his sin has been taken away, but now God is assuring David that his sin doesn't disqualify him from God's presence throughout the rest of his life and then after death. God will not abandon David for the rest of his life, nor will God abandon David when David dies. So God's revelation, it gives David the hope of eternal life for himself and for his son. Now, a quick comment on verse 30. Verse 32, I can talk. Verse 22. Notice how it's God's grace that shapes David's view of God. David fasted, he prays, he wept. Because he knew that God was a God of grace. David's first instinct while knocked on the floor with grief was to plead with the God who he knows is gracious. Which means David is so gripped by God's grace because God's grace has gripped him. Second word of grace that David receives comes from the name of the child that David and Bathsheba have. You see, the first word of grace that David received while on the floor is that God will not abandon David. David's sin doesn't disqualify him from eternal life. And this made David realize something then. God's at peace with me. And I am at peace with him. Okay, what's the child's name? Solomon. You know what the Hebrew root of that name is? Shalom. Shalom. I am at peace. But God is not done assuring David yet. <laughs> I mean, if that's not enough, right? First, he assures him that his sin doesn't disqualify him from eternal life. 
God's going to be with him throughout his life and then after he dies. And then I'm at peace with you. You're at peace with me. There's no more fighting. That would be enough, wouldn't it? Not to God. Notice, God sends Nathan with a name. Solomon's not enough, David. Name him Jedediah. You know what Jedediah means? My beloved. He is beloved of God. He is deeply loved by God. Can you see how this text oozes? Pours out grace. Pours out assurance. Pours out hope. But believe it or not, there's still more. (laughs) There's one question we've left unanswered. It's a question I haven't asked yet, but look at verse 24. Notice it doesn't say that David tried to comfort her. He comforted her. How? How was David able to comfort Bathsheba? Now remember, she's a part of all this, right? So, you think she's struggling with her understanding of God throughout all of this? It doesn't say David tried to comfort her. It said that he comforted her. Now, if we put the two words of grace together, and this is where context is everything, I didn't have time to do this, but in 2 Samuel 7, that's when God promises David an eternal dynasty, a seed, a singular seed who would be an eternal king who would establish an eternal kingdom. If you put the two words of grace together with that promise, you know what I think happened? I think David went into Bathsheba and he says, we're going to have another son. And this son is going to be the one whom God promised to fulfill his redemptive purposes through. Could you imagine her reaction if that's what David said? (laughs) Maybe like Sarah, she laughed. (laughs) Like, uh, yeah, Sarah, God told me that we're going to give birth to a son who's going to be the Messiah of the world. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Could you imagine what Bathsheba was thinking? If that's what David said, how can this be after what we've done? What kind of God would do something like that? What kind of God would bring the Messiah of the world out of the mess that we made? A God who loves to be gracious to sinful people. A God who would provide a son for sinful people. To give his people his peace and the assurance that they are deeply loved by Him. So what do we learn about life in the kingdom of grace from David? No matter what you've done. Through David's greater son, Jesus, you can find God's pardon and God's forgiveness. 
Because of Jesus' death on the cross, God will lift, He will remove, He will take away completely your sin and then cover you so that He no longer sees it. God will not punish you for your sin. That's what we learn from this text. God is not angry with you. And if I could say it so you understand it, God likes you. He really does. He enjoys you. He sings over you. He rejoices over you. He never frowns. He always smiles over you. How do we know? Shalom and Jedediah. I am at peace and you are deeply loved. So when you turn away from God's love, when you turn away from the God who loves you like that, repent by owning your sin in order to disown it so that your sin no longer owns you. And the only way you can disown it is when you own the love that God has for you. So, because of His grace, He will always take you back. Because of His grace, He will always put you back together with His peace and with His love. And I want to make one last statement by reading Romans 8. And I want to make one observation about Romans 8. If you've never read Romans 8, it is the richest chapter in all the Bible. You could read Romans 8 and never exhaust its meaning. But I want you to notice how it starts and then how it ends. So I want to read verse 1. There is therefore now, now, not future, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now we jump down to verse 31. For what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Rhetorical question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's how I used to view that verse. God's arguing, Paul's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If God didn't withhold giving you the greatest thing he could give you, Jesus, what makes you think he's going to withhold other things? That's not what he's saying. <laughs> he's already given you everything in Jesus. He doesn't withhold anything is what that means. So, what shall, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Can anybody accuse you now in Christ, is what he's basically saying. Who can do that? No one. Why? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? No one. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the one who was condemned and died. More than that, he was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Here we go. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? How does he start Romans 8? No condemnation. And because there is no condemnation, how does he end Romans 8? There is no separation. 
from his love. Brothers and sisters, if there's anything I hope that has been driven home to you this weekend, is that God's love for you in no way, in no way depends on you. That's why you fear when you know you don't love him back very well. Because you think it does. You think he loves you because when you're good. (laughs) You think he's going to love you less when you're bad. And what do we learn about life in the kingdom of grace? God loves you, period. And he proves it by sending his son to live for you, to die for you, and to rise again for you. So in Jesus, you are Shalom and Jedediah. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the incredible news. The incredible news that we are forgiven. That we are at peace with you and you are at peace with us. So we are okay. That because of Christ, we are welcomed, we are embraced, we are accepted, we are declared to be righteous. And what we saw tonight is that we, or this morning, that we are deeply loved. It's not enough just to have peace. We need to know and experience the reality that you love us. So again, just help us to believe it. Help us to trust in it. Help us to... Help that to impact our hearts in such a way that it changes us. Because all of us know what it's like to live under the frown of our Father. And sadly, that's how many Christians live their lives. As if you're disappointed with them. As if you're angry with them. As if you're going to punish and reject them. But what do we learn? You smile upon us. Help us to live under the reality of knowing your smile. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.